we went after Governor Blagojevich because we had good information that he was committing crimes. I've done a ton of arrests uh, where we uh, knock on the door, you know, FBI, and we have to breach and go in where the subject is just absolutely stark naked. And so um, if there's a big case like following the 9-11 attacks uh, in 2001, we were, you know, all of us were working 14, 15 hour days just to make sure there weren't planes going to be flying Scary into the Sears Tower. Yeah. That was terrifying. Scary yeah, stuff. That was a tough time. It really was. Yeah. I mean, it changed everything. Uh, I was a bank fraud agent and then uh, overnight I became a counterterrorism agent. Did you? Wow. So you were an FBI agent when Snowden did what he did, right? Yeah. I, I did the search at Snowden's house in Hawaii because he was a Hawaii guy, as Yikes, was I. This is good shit. Good shit. Uh, wow. I love this every second. So you did the search of Snowden's house. You were actually in his house. I was in his house looking through his drawers. People our age, Todd, find themselves often looking back at their lives saying, does my life matter? You know, that kind of midlife crisis sure. thing. Nobody who is an FBI special agent needs to ask that question of themselves. Well, I knew this was going to be great. I knew it was going to be great. The political side of it, and then there's the real story. There's a lot to unpack right there. It wasn't quite the interview I thought that was going to be. There's a reason for it. This will be officially my favorite podcast I've ever done. I uh, wondered about so you were in Chicago, you said, for 15 years? Uh, well, I've been in Chicago my whole life, but as an agent for 13 years. And you, was it Goyevich? Is that how you say his last name? Blagojevich. 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 And he was the governor. He was the governor of Illinois, and um, he was pretty corrupt. And did you, like, how do you go after a government official? Like, you're in the FBI. By the way. I realize that there may be stuff you can't tell me because I'm sure when you it's, left the most FBI, of that stuff's public record. You know, he went to trial twice and uh, before he went to prison. So, oh really? It's all out there. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. But I mean, like, since you're you're still, you know, you're a retired FBI agent, I presume they want you to act a certain way, right? I, no one has told. I mean, I obviously can't discuss national security secrets or any case that wasn't adjudicated in court. But I was a criminal agent most of my career, Todd, and so and most of what I did, if I did it right, wound up in court, and it was kind of out there for the world to see. Wow! So you're going after a governor. I got to assume it's an elected official. There's a little bit of more higher level of care. Or no. Oh, yeah. I mean, the scrutiny is insane in a case like that, right? I mean, right. Uh, both DOJ in Washington and FBI headquarters is kind of scrutinizing every move and we have to play mother may I, but you want it that way, right? We don't want the FBI to be politicized in a way that it, there's an, even an impression that we're going after people because of their ideology. We went after uh, Governor Blagojevich because we had good information that he was committing crimes. Well, even your voice sounds like it should be on TV. You notice that? I mean, it's like... So I met you I got on a face for radio though. So I don't think so. I've seen your TikToks and I've seen your, uh, I think Instagram, uh, it's, it's actually quite entertaining, but, uh, so how did you first like generally hear that you're going to go after the governor? Like, I wondered how okay. something like that starts from like, okay, this is you're easy. in your office. No, right. No, we got, this is easy. So this, the state legislature put uh, in what year was Obama elected? It's 2008, right? Right. Right. So November 2008 was the election. There was state legislature in, in Illinois passed a law saying that if you did business with the state of Illinois, you could not make political contributions. A very sensible law, right? We're getting rid of pay for play in Illinois, which sure. is the way Illinois had always been. Right. Uh, back to the days of when Kennedy was elected. Right. Right. But that wasn't effective until January 1st, 2009. Think of the timeline. So Blagojevich then stands up a war room to begin shaking down contractors for political contributions for that window of time in the fall of 2008 um, to before the this law kicks into place on January 1st. 
Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, so, I got it. Yeah. So he's trying to like, it's, it's just a feeding frenzy. We get word from an informant that he's doing this. We get permission to go up on a wiretap at his home office and phones and, and basically bug everything. We turn on the on switch. God. We turn on the on switch to hear him to hear him soliciting bribes, basically, from state contractors in exchange for bribes. And we hear something entirely different that we weren't expecting. We hear him. We hear him trying to monetize the Senate seat that's about to be won by Senator Barack Obama, because they, once Barack Obama becomes president, the governor gets to name the next senator. Blagojevich wow, thought wow, that this was golden wow, wow. and had an and his had an opportunity to actually receive money in exchange for selling the Senate seat to someone. And it really became just a, a bidding war among different politicians and political players to see who was going to get that Senate seat. And uh, we found ourselves listening to something we never expected to hear. And you wondered why I wanted him as a guest. Now, now you didn't actually wonder, but just in general. The wonder is, why do I have an, a private investigator for me, FBI guy? I knew this was going to be great. I knew it was going to be great. This is great shit. I'm sorry. Um, so, so you're, are you listening or are other people listening? I was actually, I, I had wire shifts and eventually I, 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 we were on a small team, about a dozen of us who were working the wire. Eventually I became, uh, I was quickly promoted into being a supervisor of the wire where I was listening to the phone calls of the day, every day. We, we can't listen to personal phone calls. People think we do, but we don't. We, what we do is we minimize. So if you're talking to your wife about like what's good for dinner that night, we shut the recorder off and then we like, check in every 45 seconds to a minute to see if, are you still talking personal stuff or has the conversation changed to something that's corrupt and criminal. Mm -hmm. And so I would go through and basically quality control. And I would also create the logs of what the governor was saying on the phone, most of which was criminal, candidly, that would then go uphill to my supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's Office to make decisions about when to take this thing down. But again, I want to make it clear. I was just one person in a team. There were case agents who were smarter and better looking than me who were managing the case. But I was I was managing the wire at his home, which is pretty much where he did most of his work. And he has no idea that he's trying to solicit money for the Senate seat. Oh, he knew very well he was trying no, to solicit no, he money. Knows, I'm sorry. He knows he's doing it, but he doesn't know you're listening. He has no idea we're listening. If he knew he, we were listening, he would not have behaved so atrociously. He just thinks he's above the law. I, think, I mean, do you think there's any way he knew that? Wait, wait, that's illegal? I think his defense was interesting. His defense is, hey, man, this is politics. Politics is about deal making. And, um, and that played very well in the first trial, which was a mistrial. One juror did not convict him. And so we went back and retried him until a jury of 12 found him guilty. And then he went to prison for a long, long time. And then President Trump commuted his sentence and let him out early. How long did he go to prison for? Oh, my. I mean, 2009 through the Trump. I mean, he was in prison for a good 14, 15, 13 years. Something, I mean, in that neighborhood, I think his sentence was like 16, 17 years. So he had a few years left before he was let go. When you actually uh, does a governor go to a normal prison when he went to federal prison? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not the high maximum security prison, right? It's like a Martha Stewart prison. Yeah, it's practicing his golf swing. I don't I don't know. I've never done time, Todd. Uh, but uh, me, but I, me neither. <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Contrary to everyone out there, right? Uh, some some of the people who don't like me, uh, I've never been arrested. Knock on wood. I I have got a speeding ticket one time. Anyways. I think all prisons are drag. I think the minimum security federal prisons probably the least bad option if you're mm. in prison. I mean, mm. I, I don't think he's you're in any physical danger of being like shanked by the stockbroker in the next cell. Right. But but is is that like the most like when you think about all the cases, you probably should write a book. But uh 
when you think about all the cases that you've people you put away and stuff like this is that the most high profile that's probably the most high profile i had other cases which i think meant more to the victims and uh, and i prefer the fraud cases versus the political corruption cases personally because mm -hmm. i'm a i'm a financial guy but um but cpa you're a cpa i'm a cpa yeah right. and this fbi doesn't hire cpas because we're fun to be around they hire us to do financial crimes but, but i could i could get you to investigate financial crimes and do my taxes too I'm not a tax guy. I'm if, kidding. If, yeah, me Come doing on. your taxes would be like hiring a, a brain surgeon to give you a vasectomy. You don't, you don't want that. Right? I'm kidding. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So I, I guess I want to ask the question is 26 years before you retired, you decided I'm going to go into the FBI. Well, before that, I wanted to be an FBI agent since I was a little kid. You wanted to be an FBI agent since you were a little kid. Oh, yeah, for all the wrong reasons, right? I thought I'd be jumping off moving trains every day and like rappelling down helicopters and rescuing damsels in distress. But, right. Um, the job was very satisfying, but in a very different way. It's interesting because the guy who saved Ronald Reagan, who you pushed him in the car, mm -hmm. watched Ronald Reagan be a Secret Service agent when he was a kid and decided that he wanted to be a Secret Service agent. When, when he when he played that role. Sure. And you decided when you were a kid, I, so I decided when I was 11, I wanted to work on Wall Street. I, I met Warren Buffett via uh, Lou Dobbs Moneyline, I think in 80 or 81 or whenever it was. That's great. We both got to live our dreams. Right. Well, I'm still living it. Me um, too. But you are now a private investigator, but you, you wanted to be an, an FBI agent since you were a little kid. So how did you become a CPA? And I mean, how does that work? Well, again, you and I are the same age. So coming up, the um, the SNL crisis was a big deal. In I think the, you're uh, younger than me. No, I think we're exactly the same age. Oh, high, really? High school class of 88, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah that's right. And so the... Um, and so the SNL crisis really kind of brought it home. You can't put anything past an FBI guy, right? You know, it's like your birthday was at seven fourteen in the morning. Don't forget, you're not you're not a, you're not thirty fifty three yet. Anyway, sorry, go go ahead. The SNL crisis of the nineteen eighties really brought it home that FBI agents who are trained in law enforcement as investigators, but who also have a background in finance and as certified public accountants, can be very valuable. And if you think about it, most federal crimes really involve money, whether it's money flowing in out of Al Qaeda or a drug organization or just straight up financial crimes, someone mm -hmm. with a, both a CPA background with an investigative training can really bring a lot to the table. I have a friend, she was a lawyer, she still is, and she was charged with a, a crime federally. And I knew she was trying to do the right thing. She got caught up in something that she did not absolutely do. But they, uh, the US attorney, you know, prosecuted her and this other person in trial at the same time. She ended up being acquitted. Um, which I was super thankful that that happened for sure. her. I mean, oh my God, it was terrible for her. But the other guy was found guilty. It was clear as day that he was guilty. Um, she lost just for being charged. She wasn't convicted. Mm -hmm. She lost every bank account. She's a very wealthy woman. All of her banks closed her accounts. They sent her back her money. She lost all, everything she had. Like, not lost her, she didn't lose her real estate, but like the ability to bank, do business with financial institutions. Uh, I think only a credit union kept her, uh, an account open for her. What do they, you... they chose to not do business with her because of this black mark on her record? Well, no, because she was when she was charged, but not she hadn't go to trial. Right. And trial took four years before she got to trial. Mm -hmm. During that four years, right as soon as she was charged... Within a couple months, all the they closed her accounts. No well, shame on them. They they should uh, they should respect the rule of law and understand that she's innocent until wonder, she's proven guilty. I wonder if you know, being as a financial crimes investigator, why is it that the institutions just sort of fry you right away? Because everyone I know yeah. 
when they get anything with FINRA, the SEC, anything before they're even found any guilty of anything or, or agree to a settlement, they mostly lose their their national bank accounts. Like the big banks just go, you're out of here. We don't want to do business. Now, clearly, they're private companies. They have the right to do yeah. business with who they want to. But it seems a little. I, mean, I, I agree. I, 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 I I'm with you. Uh, you know, the banks are risk averse, and they're choosing to um, to not take a risk of doing business with someone who's been charged but not convicted of a crime. It's certainly nothing that the government will have instituted or forced them to do. And I don't believe the bank regulators force that upon the banks. But I think the banks see it as maybe a showing of good faith to the public, and and it's wrong. The mm -hmm. banks should not be excluding people who haven't been convicted of crimes from conducting business. I guess I do sympathize that they're just concerned about associates. Right. Yeah. I mean, your friend would be an exception to the rule, but the vast majority of people who are who are indicted on financial crimes are, are later found guilty or plead guilty. I mean, we're not indicting people just randomly like a like jury selection. Are um, you a real believer that you when it comes to indicting someone? You really the that that I mean, you were on the inside, yeah. right? But you're not making the decision to indict. You're you're not the prosecutor. We are making the right. We're presenting the case. To the the pro we're making we're right. presenting the case to the prosecutor. But a a good agent is is has the prosecutor on the phone throughout the investigation to make sure you are hitting everything you need to do to make that prosecutor happy. I looked at the prosecutors the way I looked like at, at a, the prosecutor is my client. I am bringing this case to the prosecutor in such a way that the prosecutor is going to be thrilled with the results of my investigation. And we'll take a look at it and then usually come back with a punch list, like when you buy a house. Hey, I need you to do this, 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 and this to nail down these things. And then I would go back and do that. And then the case is ready for presentation to the grand jury, who then hands down the indictment. But the indictment's only a finding of probable cause. Every citizen who's indicted has a right to their day in court to be proven innocent or guilty in front of a jury. It's... It's an interesting uh, line of work you're in. I wonder, and we're going to be all over the map today. Yes, yeah, fine. But I wonder, now that you're a private investigator, I've seen some of your videos where you talk to people about becoming an FBI agent, right? And, and some of your cases talk about sort of like your daily life. But one I watched was you said that you couldn't do drugs, I think it was marijuana, for a year before you decided to apply. That's right. They changed it. They, they, they've loosened it. Used the to be never, right? Now it used to be a much longer window of time. And then what they tried to do, the rule used to be there was a longer window of time. I, I'm not a drug user, and uh, so it never really was an issue to me. But the they made people count the number of times they've smoked marijuana in their lives. And what all that really did was turn our applicants into liars because most people just don't really you're not keeping track of it, right? There's not a clicker that you have to keep track of every time you're at a party and you take a toke. And so, right. so so it, it was, became untenable. And then once they started legalizing it in all the states, and now we're in this awful situation where it's legal in many states, but it's still a Schedule One narcotic it's federally. Illegal. Yeah, it's just a, it's an awful situation. I wish Congress would fall in line with the states and allow that. And I think the FBI also realized we're losing out on a lot of really good, otherwise qualified applicants who just maybe use pot in college, which doesn't make them bad people or evil people. It's interesting. Something can be legal and then corrupted at the same time, right? I mean, it can be like illegal in one state, federally illegal, and then someone can take something legal in that state and still make it illegal. Like you can, you can have a license to sell marijuana, say in Florida, but it's still illegal for you to sell marijuana on the street. Right, I mean, it's a regulated industry, right? I mean, right. same with cigarettes and a lot of other things. You can't sell cigarettes out of the back of your car. Right, so if you were to think about FTX, and I kind of like, I never wanted FTX to happen because, of course, I'm in Bitcoin. But when I thought about you coming on the show, I thought, wow, perfect timing, right? Yeah. Financial crimes. Um, 
I'm sure that someone's going to bring you into investigating this. I can't imagine that they're not, the topic's not going to come up to you. Um, I get the impression that you uh, aren't a fan of Bitcoin. I am a Bitcoin skeptic. You're a Bitcoin skeptic. Well, that's that's better than I thought. No, and, 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 and I know you, who I respect, and I know you're a smart guy, and you've thought about this a lot more than I have. So I'd be happy to share with you my reservations involving cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And with an, here, listen to you with an open mind. You explain to me why I've got it wrong. Yeah, so I don't think the wrong or right is, is the error here. So let's be clear where I'm at. Yeah. I'm a Bitcoin purist. I think that you should just own some Bitcoin in your portfolio. As soon as you add loans, leverage, snake oil, wrap them in different flavors, issue cryptocurrency, um, we I completely disagree with everything else that's been taking place. But Todd, you see a you see a market difference between Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ethereum and all the other coins out there. You think Bitcoin's just a different Bitcoin, flavor? Bitcoin, there's going to be 21 million of them. It was a it was a um, uh, immaculate conception of how it transpired. There's no central agency that issues them. It's an electronic algorithm that cannot be changed. And what you have is people modifying them and they're actually issuing coins, right? So when you can just issue coins as a depository where you, you could issue an unlimited amount and more of them are, are coined or minted all the time, it sounds like a security to me. Uh, kind of seems like a security. I would absolutely say it's right. a security. It's certainly, so, certainly not a currency. Right. And so my problem is, is that when you lump the word cryptocurrency in with a digital asset, which is Bitcoin, where it requires heavy investment, we've invested over $150 million in mining and data centers, where it requires energy payments, where we pay, spend millions of dollars per month on mining Bitcoin, and there's a finite amount that we agree upon as a society around Bitcoin that's going to be ever issued, is far different than the Wild West, which we're finding out with SBF, Sam Bank, Bank been freed and what's going on with FTX, where they were just issuing them, supporting themselves, trading them, issuing more. I got to imagine, I just did an interview with Anthony Scaramucci, where he talked about how they use client funds to prop up the hedge fund. Uh, not he did it, sorry, FTX did it, to be clear. Let's make sure we get that clear. Anthony's saying FTX and Alameda did this. And Anthony was, of course, an investor. I got to imagine this is a field day for you. Like, this is like, uh, Tom Simon 101, like, where do I start with the fraud? But for the fact that you crypto people have created this fantastic world where you've created a, a currency that's just really difficult to follow the money. Mm. And the job of someone like me is to follow the money. Mm. Imagine that it wasn't FTX. Imagine that it was Charles Schwab, that money was either embezzled from or someone came in and hacked it and took a bunch of account, uh, accounts. It would be the easiest thing in the world to follow the money, right? And find out who did it. And Charles Schwab has probably insured up the yin yang and your money would you'd be made whole like this. But instead we've created this really cute system that everybody thinks so so cool, right? This cryptocurrency that's untraceable and, 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 and you know, and we know that transactions have occurred because you know we keep all these great logs in the um, in the blockchain. But now we've really stymied ourselves with the ability to actually investigate this on the back end and come up with a useful result. Is it worth it, Todd? It you guys have been hold on a second. You guys have been recovering billions of dollars though, and you your your agency has been my former agency. Your former agency has been investigating Bitcoin crimes, has been using the blockchain to 
figure out where all those wallets were and ultimately have recovered billions of dollars, though. Yeah, but it's incredibly difficult. All I'm saying is the, the, the likelihood of success is severely diminished mm. for law enforcement and regulators to recover money for victims in these situations. Mm. And I guess my question is, is what problem are we trying to solve by this security that is absolutely untethered to anything in the real world? Well, I think what we're trying to solve is that we have if you go back in history over hundreds of years, we have governments that just issue unlimited amounts of fiat currency and they debase it. In fact, the only experiment really about lacking debase is the US and it's the best of the worst. I, By the way, I'm a supporter of the US currency, so we're clear. Right. I do not think we should get rid of the US dollar. In fact, I think the US dollar is the only thing that kind of matters. I can't trust Russia. I can't trust China. I can't trust Venezuela. I can, I can probably trust the British government. Mm -hmm. um, I can trust the Japanese. Uh, I can probably trust the Singaporeans. Um, you definitely can't trust Russia with currency. I mean, they have to base that thing to the ground, right? So why not have a digital asset in a digital world? But by the way, I'll put this caveat. I welcome rec I welcome all the regulation that the government thinks they should put on it. I, I welcome everyone, both sides, getting together and saying, here's exactly how we're going to do this and how we're going to be transparent. What I fear is that the government wants to digitize the dollar and now they're going to know if, by the way, it's clear that you don't do this, but imagine for a second that um, I give a political contribution to a one particular party and the person in charge can know by all the digital dollars I spend exactly who I give it to. I think that's very corruptible power. Sure. Right. So I don't have the answer. I don't, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it because right. you were on the front lines. You, you see you know, politicians say, well, they use Bitcoin to commit crimes. Uh, they use dollars to commit crimes. Right, too. exactly. That's right. not an argument no. against Bitcoin, but it's certainly not an argument for it, right? The fact no. that the only people truly using Bitcoin as a currency are people involved in ransomware and ripping off little old ladies they for, their, were. for their life savings. They were. They were. They were the only people. They're not now. I mean, we have a marketplace. Uh, they were. Who's using who? Where can you go to buy something with Bitcoin? Ah, bitnile.com. Wow, that was not planned, by the way. <laughs> Anyways. My I point is, it's not a currency in any real way. And it's not going to be a currency because it's too, it's too volatile. It, it's like in Lima, Peru, under, um, under inflation, no one wants to be changing their prices every five minutes as the price of this thing goes up and down like an EKG, I think Todd. it's incredible, incredibly valid that Bitcoin over time has to have more stability. I think when it reaches something like 100,000 a coin, it'll be easier Uh but I'm a I'm a Bitcoin advocate that it's here to stay. That really, literally, if you're a student of history, the 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 monetary system in this world continues to change and evolve. I don't think you can put the blockchain genie back in the bottle. I'm not even saying I have no problem with blockchain as a as a data processing tool. I think mm -hmm. it's a brilliant invention. I just don't know that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is the best output from that. And I also and, and I love the I love the macroeconomic theory, right? As as a in economics master's thesis, the idea of a digital currency that we're all on board with without a central bank, that's really cool. It only works, though, if we reach a critical mass of people who are willing to buy into this. And we're just not there. And I don't see us being there. Yeah, we have 100 million wallets, in, or, or I think, around the U.S. or around the world. And we got a long ways to go, right? There's right. 8 billion people. Yeah. And so right. the I, 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 when I talk to Bitcoin people I feel, who, are, who are in that camp, um, like, uh, like your guest, Natalie, who is brilliant, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I respect her a lot, uh, I 
I love hearing it from them because I tend to lean libertarian myself mm -hmm. and, and I love the idea of, of this thing. But it's like talking to a vegan who's going to talk about how the, when the world turns vegan, how wonderful it's going to be. And it's just not going to happen because people aren't going to buy into this. I am so skeptical. People are so resistant to change, right? Go, when you're out on Main Street talking to people, the idea of them putting all their assets into an app on their phone is unthinkable to them. And it's going to be unthinkable for long after you and I are dead, Todd. Do you... uh? Do you know many vegans? Yeah, tons. Ever heard of vegan leather? Yeah, sure. Pleather. Is it, isn't pleather. vegan leather vinyl? Basically. Isn't it vinyl? I mean, it's all <laughs> plastics, right? <laughs> it makes no sense to me. I talk about repackaging stuff. Uh, I saw, I know a very famous model married to a friend of mine. And she's like, hey, there's this vegan leather available in my Range Rover. It's vinyl. It's like, I mean, I'm not joking around. It's Ricardo Montalban's Corinthian leather. In the yeah. 70s, you, you like your feet, your, your sweat on that. I mean, I don't crazy. Anyways, you brought up vegan. So My I point though is that, is that I love the idea of this utopia where we're all there. I just don't think, see, we're going to get there. So now we're ta not talking about a currency anymore. What we're talking about is a highly, highly volatile, unregistered security. Digital right. asset. Not a security. It doesn't have a central issuer. And you earn it by activity, but I'm with you. There's no person in control of the price. There's no person in control of how much you issue. It's also not tethered to anything real. I mean, you came from the world of stocks and bonds. You can take a look at those things and understand the purpose of them. Mm. All we're doing is creating demand, and which is why I believe it has all the qualities of a Ponzi scheme and a pump and dump scheme, which is why crypto, it's so important to have these, these evangelists out there telling more people to put money into it because it's the only way you're going to get your money out and that the value will continue to go up because the, the Demand is not based on anything real. This thing seems like a real house of cards, Todd. You talk about Bitcoin? Bitcoin, all I, I well, again. Okay, I, I don't a distinguish. Huge differentiator. I do not distinguish between them. How can you not? Because there's, you know, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin ever mined in the whole world. There's only going to be 21 million. You don't know how many Ethereum they're going to be. You don't know how many XRP there are going to be. You don't know how many Doge coins are going to be. There is a big difference, right? My there problem with that. is not with the finite number. Then my problem is with it, the concept in general. It, it doesn't matters. matter, Todd. You're, you're like a Mooney pointing at the Scientologist talking about how they're cultists you're this, how does it not matter when you you can finite you're you're suggesting to me that we okay when we decided gold had value right this was long before the industrial revolution mm -hmm. we didn't know that it it magnified things we didn't know what you could electrify it we knew that it was pretty and you could use it for value right so we have a difference of opinion energy goes into bitcoin energy comes out with the ability to transact and i know people who use it all the time for currency but that I'm not advocating as a currency. I'm ad advocating as a, a digital asset. And I'm only arguing that you should have a digital asset. That digital assets, whether they're in the forms of an NFT or some other things, are here to stay. But that's a different argument. Yours is more, and I would, unfortunately, I have to agree with you. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's unfortunate. I do agree with you that when you equate it to trading and the sort of the greater fool theory that someone else is going to pay more for it, it diminishes what Bitcoin could be. But isn't that the vast majority of people, they're involved in a get-rich-quick scheme? I Can we agree with that? I would I would agree with you that there are people out there that are, are weaponizing and toxifying something that's pure, that is a digital asset, and it's likely that there'll be digital assets out there in the universe. I'm not a believer that that we're only going to have paper money and it's only going to be issued by a central government. Um, but the great experiment with the United States, hey, listen, remember up until, uh, what was it? I don't know, 234 years ago, 
There's no country that wasn't a dictator. There was nobody that wasn't in charge by one person, yeah. uh, female or male. And the great experiment of the USA continues. And you're part of that. For right? the record, I'm not saying Bitcoin or any crypto should be outlawed. I'm not even saying it should be regulated. I'm saying to my friends and family, stay away from this stuff. Yeah, so I'm begging for it to be regulated. I'm begging for the SEC to make the rules clear. Do not lead by enforcement. Lead by rules. I don't want a penny of my tax dollars going to monitor this activity. I, that's like saying to me, it's like saying, mon like let's regulate the street corner psychics on every corner of every bad neighborhood of every town. Yeah, they're but all, the street corner all, psychics it's, it's all are doing five billion worth of trading a day. Yeah, my point is that it's all nonsense and in, in, in buyer beware. This is a good debate. I, I, I listen. I think what you do and have done, and what you currently do is so needed and one of the reasons i wanted to have you on the show was i've been watching your content and thought to myself i know so many people that do business with people and they like wire them money before they check them out they they don't read the documents they don't get a lawyer and i thought you know even even my own shareholders that when when the thing goes down they call me a fraud and a con man and i say to them do you read the financial documents that show that i can raise capital do you read that right. i'm filing with the SEC? Do you do the work? And what I wanted to champion a little bit was, is that I see your stuff and I think to myself, I'm still educating my, I, I've been doing this for 33 years, but I find that when I watch your stuff, I get a little more educated as to what to think about what I'm doing. So I'm not, I'm not trying to tell everyone to be paranoid, but I kind of wanted to promote what you're doing because I thought, you were on the inside of doing this, and now you're investigating for prosecutors. Now you're doing private investigative work. Correct. But to spend a quarter of a century at the FBI, right, which is what you did, mm -hmm. to have a CPA background, and then to still continue in private practice, um, I know a lot of people investing millions of dollars that spend more time on planning their vacation then they do where they wire the money. It is shocking to me the lack of due diligence people do before they actually invest money with somebody to actually take a look into that person's background or even to e evaluate the claims made by the person offering an investment. Nearly every case I investigated when I was an FBI special agent and as a private investigator doing financial crimes all have this common denominator of the promise of high rates of return coupled with low risk. And that's a unicorn. It just doesn't exist in the real world. Yeah, and I, I, if you went back to crypto, I would, I kept saying, I didn't do this. I kept saying, how can I give you my Bitcoin, and you're going to stake me and pay me a rate that's way above normal rates, and it that seemed to me like a little more Ponzi. Whereas they're paying out sixteen percent because you're staking another crypto, and then it, I, I, I can't even actually explain it. So when I can't explain it, I. I when I can't figure it out, like if you can't, to me, if you can't make me explain to me like I'm stupid, like just dumb it down for me. Like it's so simple for me. I put money in a bank. Uh, I have it on deposit with them. They lend the money to someone's mortgage. They give me a little cut mm -hmm. and then they manage a portfolio of it that I couldn't do. Right. Right. Yeah. But in, in the Bitcoin world or not in the Bitcoin world, in the cryptocurrency sort of FTX world. Right. You, you could stake someone. Um, but why is it that co people constantly believe? I, I, I literally, when I was a broker you know, hundred years ago, I, I used to say it was easier for me to call someone and tell them there was a a mine in Zimbabwe that was going to mine diamonds. Yeah, 
than it was to sell AT&T paying an 8% dividend. Well, that's the problem, right? You're saving, you know, everyone grew up with savings accounts that had a decent interest rate when you and I were young. Now, you know, now your interest rate in your savings account is going to be 1% if you're lucky. And so everyone's looking to get that, that taste. And everyone also just enjoyed a long run of a bull market in the stock market where they were seeing 15% a year returns on their S&P 500. And so mm. chasing those high returns is where people go wrong, and but they're trying to actually control risk, which then really opens them up to these con artists who are promising them those high rates of return with low risk. Mm. And so I understand how addicting it is. And, and I never castigate my victims. I'm there for my victims. How many, um, how many cases could you handle at a time? I, I always wonder, like you see tons of cases, like yeah. all these cases, right. and you're one guy. How many can you do? My first six years, I was on a bank fraud squad. So my victims were all banks. And so then I was carrying like 15 to 20 cases at a time. When I moved into investment fraud later in my career, I could handle about four or five big cases at a time. But the thing to understand is that they're all in different stages of the process. The FBI doesn't walk away from the case as soon as we hand it to the prosecutor. We shepherd that thing all the way through sentencing. And so a case where you know it's a waiting trial is just a long, slow slog with lots of uh, status hearings in court. And so that's not eating up as much of your time. But mm. And then you try to manage your time. It's just it's time management like anything else in business. But you're, but you're also investigating, which means you have to go out and talk to talk people. To people. That's the idea. You know, you get off your ass and you knock on doors. So what was like a like? Let's figure out in the in the twenty six years. Let's think about what the average day was like being an FBI. Sure. Agent. You get sure. up in the morning. You're like Rocky. You you blend your your <laughs> raw eggs. You work out a little do bit. Do some shadow boxing. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do? What's your day like? Right. Well, every, every, invest, every investment fraud case is pretty much the same. What you're doing is you're talking to victims. And I, from those victims, I want to know what is it you were told before you invested that separated you from your money? And that's not the question they're expecting, right? Because they all want to know, they all want to tell me the story about what happened when they the return stopped or when they tried to get their money back. I want to know what were you promised before you invested the money that separated you from your money, right? And mm. so that's what you're being told the, your money's being invested in. And then I go out there and I subpoena the bank records of the bad guy. And I put those two things side by side with each other. The story that's told to the victim versus what actually happened to the money in the records. And the amount of daylight between those two things is the quality of the evidence in my case. And so it's really rinse and repeat. You're talking to people and then you're lo looking at the financial records. And then in, at the, it always concludes with me with actually confronting the bad guy, confronting the person who's offering this investment. And if you're good, uh, and I was good, I would try to get a confession from them, a signed confession, which then expedites this thing through the criminal justice mm -hmm. system once they're charged. What if you got someone that's like saying, I put money in, they signed a prospectus, I lost my money. And they think the person's a bad guy. What do you do? You I'm not the bad investment police. I'm the fraud police. Right. So you're looking for fraud. Absolutely. I'm looking you for I'm looking for fifty percent and they got one percent and it wasn't a real investment, you put the money in your own account. That's the thing. It's, right. it's the what happened to the money is really the key, right? You mm -hmm. you're gonna invest this money in crypto, this you're not gonna invest shit. this money in roulette. So you could handle four to 15 cases at a time, so it sounds like. Yeah, like again, right. And you have a five-year statute of limitations um, to actually make the case. I mean, if you're, you know, you're not doing your job if you're playing that, uh, if you're running up to that deadline. But, right. but um, there's no real sense of urgency. The other thing you have to take a look at is, are there any assets that's that are recoverable, right? right? You because can try to freeze those. Quickly, freeze right? them or seize them. Uh, I prefer to seize them. And, uh, and so, you know, if someone used somebody, if, if you were, if an investor gave you money to invest in, in Bitcoin or stocks or bonds, or and I used it for to buy a pool. Yeah, you could sort of see something, right? Right. Well, the pool's a little Not a bit bad more. Example: yeah, car. 
a car. I did a lot of seizing of cars uh, and so and bank accounts. Right. And so you go in, you seize that, and then that uh, that becomes an asset that's being held until adjudication of the case. And so, so you have the power to take stuff. Absolutely. Before they're found guilty. Right. We need to preserve that asset. Now, again, seizing it's different than forfeiting it. Those are oh. two different things. So you're right? just freezing it. I'm taking it and putting it in safekeeping until the case is adjudicated. I need to establish probable cause that the that this asset, this car, is the proceeds of a crime, mm, right? In the same it. way, I would need probable cause to search a house or search an office or search an mm. email account. Ever get it wrong? Like really wrong? Like wow? I I know, and I don't want to talk about the case if you did. Yeah. But like, do you ever like do something and then realize that's a problem? Uh, there were cases I investigated where I opened a case where after talking a little bit and taking a look, I discovered that there was no actual crime here and I closed the case and moved on. And there was no shortage of work. It was drinking from a fire hose. Uh, and so, but I'm not, but it's not a situation where anyone's going to jail. That's good stuff. You know, when I, I wanted to hire a private detective, a private investigator, sorry, not detective. Same difference. I wanted to hire one because we do due diligence on people when we lend money and invest and stuff like this. And I wanted to hire somebody. And so you piqued my interest and I presume that was kind of why you did that, right? Is that your, was yeah, you, are I, mean, you I was spending a fortune on advertising when I started out because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like buying ads on like Nextdoor and, and Google ads actually work, but but spending money that didn't need to be spent. And I thought, you know, why don't I be my own ad agency and just and do a one minute video every single day and put it out there on every social media platform. Nothing took off except TikTok of all things. And uh, and I've gotten some good clients from it. And 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 you just had to stick with it. How how has that been? Like how has that transpired? Your TikTok, uh, like like how did you first do a couple and did nothing happen? But eventually, yeah, it took forever for to to catch on. And uh, but now you know, and I got thirty four thousand followers, which isn't doesn't I'm not doesn't make me a Kardashian, but yeah, it's but okay. on TikTok, it, on TikTok, less followers that are more engaged are more important than more. I got two million followers on on Instagram and. They're all over the world. I can't speak yeah, Portuguese. I, you know, I, my I Instagram has not taken off at all. And it's the same content, which is weird. But I, I'm not, I don't get myself hung up on that. I didn't go into this to be a social media star. I get, I get right. my, this is just my way of putting the word out there. And if I can help people by warning them away from some of the more common frauds out there, I think it's sort of my duty. Right. So you, I want to hear about like, you, you said you were in bank fraud. Were you in bank robbery or just bank fraud? I did some bank robberies because I was in Chicago and we got 400 bank robberies a year when I was there. And so you, more than you, one a day. Oh yeah, it was like. So it, let's go back to the sentence. Yeah, this is where you lost me. Sure. How do you have four hundred bank robberies a year in Chicago, and you're handling four to fifteen cases a year? Well, again, I was on the bank fraud squad, but uh, but when you're a new agent in Chicago, you were cycled through a lot of the different squads, and everybody got a bank robbery or two to uh, to go to. Bank robbery investigations aren't as interesting as they sound because usually the bad guy is long gone by the time the FBI gets there to dust for prints and grab the videos. And so it's um, you guys catch most of them. Yeah, the clear rate on bank robberies is up in the eighty percent range. So about eighty percent of the bank robbery got people. It, get yeah, caught. It's, it's a stupid crime because bank robbery one, you're probably going to get a die pack or bait bills. Two, you're not going to get that much money in the perfect world situation. Three, your sentencing is through the roof. I was so frustrated on the bank fraud squad and white collar crime squad that I was doing cartwheels if one of my bad guys got 24 months in prison, but some homeless guy doing a note jobs in prison for 10 years. I'm not saying it's just, I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that there was a heck of a lot more work that went into my investigation than the bank robbery investigation.
And the bank robbery sentences are high. They're high because it's a, there's a, a federal a, bank, right? Well, no, they're all federal, right? That's all we do at the FBI is federal. But the threat of violence is what brings it forward. Because usually the note that's being handed to the teller is not pretty, please give me money. It's give me money or I'm going to blow your head off. And so even if there's no weapon involved, that threat of violence jacks the federal sentencing guidelines up mm. through the roof. Mm. So you do any kidnapping stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, I worked some missing kid cases that no. we thought were kidnappings, but uh, were just worse than kidnappings. Uh, and so, yeah, Ouch. yeah, bad, just bad situations. And you hate those. And, uh, and, uh, but no, I, I, kidnappings were not my thing. So um, if you're on like the beat, you're like, you're after someone and I know you're married. So like, you do you clock in and clock out or do you ever like, when do you go home? This is a good thing you do. Well, you, you're, they give us a, a 25% increase in our base pay for what they call availability pay. And the idea is that we'll work 10 hour days over the course of a year averaged out, but then you're available all the time, whether it's in the old days via pager or now via cell phone. So at any point they could call me and say, Hey, leave your kid's birthday party. Come on in. We got an issue. And then you go deal with it. The nice thing about white collar crime is that my bad guys used to go home to their wives and families at the end of the day. It was like, yeah. like punching out. And right. so, uh, and so the, the hours weren't as miserable as if I were on a, a drug squad or a violent crime squad mm. but you would you be working like 70 hours a week or 50 when you're preparing for trial you're burning the midnight oil there's nothing more important than a trial you're getting all the transcripts squared away from all the secret recordings that you made you're it's it's a lot of paralegal work really mm. but and if there's a big case like following the 9-11 attacks uh, in 2001 we were you know all of us were working 14 15 hour days just to make sure there weren't planes going to be flying Scary into the sears tower yeah. that was terrifying Scary yeah stuff. that was a tough time it really was. Yeah. I mean, it changed everything. Uh, I was a bank fraud agent and then uh, overnight I became a counterterrorism agent. Did you, wow. Um, did you, uh, think that the pay, I mean, you were an investigator, but did you think that some things like, I think Obama had, uh, I think it was called operation choke point or something like that. Did you think that some things were the Patriot Act was too far? I'm not familiar with Operation Choke Point, and the Patriot it, Act it was just, enacted under George W. Bush. No, I know, but I, I, I'm choke, choke Point was something that he, that Obama had, where they were basically choking, uh, choking out uh, the banks would not do business with certain people, like payday lenders and certain things. And we experienced this because the regulators would basically give pressure, and I'm not talking about the FBI. Yeah, the regulators would give pressure to the banks that they regulated or the broker dealers they regulated to basically, why are you doing business this way? And it was not legislative, but it was more regulatory. We're going to give you pressure. Yeah. Payday lenders are a difficult situation morally. I really, yeah, there's no crime there, right? I, there's right. no crime because there's total transparency about what people are doing. Sure. Uh, it's, you know, the, the loans are going to poor people. The interest rates are, you know, is, is pure usury because it's so high. But then again, I, if I take a taxi cab to go down to the MGM, that's a very expensive cab ride. I would never take that to go to Chicago, right? So it's a short, it's supposed to be a short-term vehicle and you can understand paying a lot of money Money for a short-term vehicle, um, to, and, wow, and why you pay a little more? That way. That's so, a really good analogy. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not. No, that's a great analogy. I want to stick with that. So the payday thing is supposed to be short-term. It's supposed to, it's supposed to tide you over till the next paycheck, right? right? But in, and therefore in they're charging a high interest rate. Yeah, the expensive cab ride, which is ridiculous. Right. You would never take that to Chicago. Yeah, you would never take it a long ride. You would be like, get more something more reasonable, but 
Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a payday lender. I have no love for them, but I understand their utility. If somebody need, if it's that, or, you know, to put food on the table till your next paycheck comes in, I get it. And but I also understand how a democratic politician could see that as being predatory. So uh, thank heavens, it's not my job to make policy decisions. The Patriot Act, on a, done under George Bush, I, I remember sure. that. Mm -hmm. You think it went too far? No. And I think there's a lot of boogeymen involved with the Patriot Act that people think it is what it's not. And so the Patriot Act allowed the intelligence side of the House at the FBI to share information cleanly with the criminal side of the House and allowed agents like me on the criminal side of the House to take the information that was gathered via national intelligence wiretaps and use those in federal court to put terrorists and terrorist financiers in prison. So you were an FBI agent when Snowden did what he did, right? Yeah, I, I did the search at Snowden's house in Hawaii because he was a Hawaii guy, as Yikes, was I. This is good shit. Good shit. Uh, wow, I love this every second. So you did the search of Snowden's house. You were actually in his house. I was in his house looking through his drawers. Wow. I mean, he was gone. He was in He was in uh, Russia at the time. Well, no, he went to China. For, he went to Hong Kong first. Right. He was, he was kicking it in Hong Kong on 60 Minutes, making America look like fools. But, uh, but I mean, I was in his house that night. Can you can you lame it down for me of how he got what I mean I can't figure out like so he turned he turned over a bunch of documents he did some what basically it appears to be some pretty pretty aggressive stuff against America and then goes and now he's in Russia like how does that how does it, behind the scenes is the government like saying we're going to get this guy someday or well, I think there's agents out there and 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 you know people in the uh, intelligence community in the U.S. Department of Justice who would love to make him stand trial for what he did. I mean, there's no secret there. I mean, he's been, he's a wanted man. And, uh, and so, but I, I mean, looking at it from his perspective, he believes he was a whistleblower. He believes that the government was doing the wrong thing and this was his means by which to blow the whistle and shine a light on it. So mm -hmm. I understand what his defense would be if he faces his day in court. Um, I mean, I disagree with his decision, but, but I don't think his decision was cynical or, or based in, in malice toward the U.S. I think he believed that the U.S. was truly doing the wrong thing. And again, everything I know about the guy, I know from, you know, popular media accounts. So I, I, I've no, but when you went and searched his house, we were looking for, we were looking for national security information, right? This is a guy who stole just a ton of information from the NSA, um, it, find it? in order to leak it. No, he, his house had been, he, again, he had moved to Hong Kong by that point. I mean, he, he had personal belongings there, you know, paperback books and stuff. And, uh, but, but there was nothing there that we found of any national security significance at the house. So he kind of cleaned it up. Yeah. I mean, you take that stuff with you, right? So if I keep asking you that you th you said earlier that Bogoyevich was the, the but I kind of think that again I'm not I wasn't the case agent on Snowden I was unskilled labor they need people they literally needed agents to go in and do the search and that's the way it is often because you have a case agent you have a couple people working a case but a search warrant is a labor intensive effort you need a couple dozen agents you need someone to stand outside to make sure the looky loos don't come in and start looking through the drawers also and, and so uh, unskilled labor give me a <laughs> that's break. what I was I mean I was unskilled labor in really? that case I'm not holding myself out as the case agent on Snowden or even having any particular perspective on Edward Snowden I was just a guy who an agent who was in Hawaii at the right time to get to do the search. So I got a, a whole slew of things that people, when they knew you were going to be on the show, wanted me to ask. Yeah, lean on me. WhatsApp. WhatsApp with you. WhatsApp. Can you <laughs> can you can you tap WhatsApp? Um, WhatsApp's encrypted on both ends, so yeah. you can't tap it. Uh, it's uh, it would be really difficult to tap WhatsApp. 
I can't tap WhatsApp as a private investigator. No, I meant like what when the, you were in the FBI. What the national security can't or can't do with encrypted uh, phone communications is probably something I'd rather not get into. Right. How about the signal? Can you tap signal? Same answer. Same I, again, answer. Again, it, it, it's, it is encrypted on both ends. Right. Um, the, I don't believe that the companies that run those can even really help us because the encryption is based, in, I believe, in the software on the phone end. Mm -hmm. um, but is that is that upsetting to like your 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 process as an FBI guy? Are you, were you when you were listening to to Bogoyevich and you're like, okay, he's at home. Is he on a landline or is he on a cell phone? Um, it's a good question. I think he was on his landline at on his home line. It was a landline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but cell phones you can listen to, right? Yeah, you can. What I mean again, we're not with a court order. Sure, you go, we're going to a judge and we're establishing all the legal hurdles we need to get through, which um, to get a with a, a Title Three wiretap, or if you're doing on the national security side, a FISA wiretap, and it's a court order to the cell phone company, which then basically runs a line to the FBI where we're listening to what's happening live. Again, and minimizing any calls that are not of a criminal nature. You're not old enough to be involved in Goodfellas, but I, I love that. I did, I did a bunch of mafia wiretaps early in my did career. You? Yeah, again, unskilled labor. If you're when uh, when there's a wiretap on you know, that goes through Christmas Day, the case agents and the old guys didn't want to do that, and so they would get us young agents to sit there on Christmas Day and listen to Joey Bag of Donuts talk to his uh, his capos. Hey, that's that's my line, Joey Bag of Donuts. I love it. Dude. This is great, man. Johnny, two times. Yeah. We get the papers. Get the papers. All right. Um, I I want to make sure we can help people. So if they wanted to hire you, let's let's give them a profile of the kind of people that you'd like to do work for. So sure. so I'm a guy who's going to be I run a, a I run a a manufacturer and I want to hire the new person do they call you and say, can you look at his background? Yeah. So I get that a lot. I get corporations who contact me who want me to do a very simple background check on a prospective hire, someone who's going to be in a position of trust at their company, who will have access to assets. And they want to make sure that person is um, has a clean, has no criminal history and is not fa you know, facing foreclosures and has a bunch of civil suits and debts and liens on them, right? Because you, you want to have people in those positions who have financial responsibility mm -hmm. in their day-to-day -day lives. So I, can, I have good databases that I subscribe to and I do some data mining to get that information. I produce a very professional FBI style report for that client and I get it back to him in a couple of days. So that's, I, I talked to you about the cost of that. It didn't seem that much. I, I, don't, I don't charge a lot for that. It's, no, that it, it seems like everyone should do that. I think it's a no brainer. I, I'm, right. I, I don't understand why people who are putting people in a position of trust aren't taking a look at their background because human resources these days is so wound around the axle on all these legal things. The only thing you're going to get when you call their former company is, yes, he used to work here from this day to this day. They're not going to tell you if he's a good man or if he got caught stealing. I got to tell you, uh, I hope you listen to this. I have hired, well, I presently employ, I think we employ indirectly and directly more than five, well, somewhere in about 500 people. And uh, I wish we would have done this a lot sooner. Like the idea of we're going to, we're going to look just a, just a quick cursory look. Cause I've actually figured out in my world that if I ask a person, if something happened and they tell me the truth or they tell me ahead of time that I'm okay with it, as long as they disclose to me what happened. Right. Like, you know, like I got in a car accident, I got a DUI, I, I did blah, 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 you know? I always tell everybody what happened in my life. I've had some things happen to me. I I, I had an issue with FINRA, non-criminal. I dealt with it. I got suspended. Um, 
it's the first thing I lead with with any investor. I want to give them full disclosure of everything that's happened mm-hmm. to me, tell them how to look me up, who the people they can contact. But I notice that people won't really do the work. And then later on, they're, they're subs- they, they find out something's going on and they, and they don't do the work. So I just find it shocking when it comes to embezzlements, how many companies choose to fire but not prosecute the embezzler on their staff. What message is that sending to your other employees? It's, to me, it's saying it's open season to steal from this company because you're just going to end up losing a job that you probably didn't care much for anyway. Right. So the, so the typical person is a corporation. What kind of size? Um, I do mostly smaller corporations. Big corporations sort of have their own uh, means by which to vet their employees. And so uh, I just did a finance company in uh, Jacksonville um, who was looking to hire a um, like just an accounts receivable or accounts payable clerk. And they wanted me to run the candidates through just to make sure that there were no issues with them. Mm-hmm. Again, that's sort of that's just a core product of mine. What I really prefer are the actual investigations where a, an embezzlement has occurred or some financial dispute and they need someone to actually follow the money to find out what happened. I I also do a lot of uh, cases where that culminate in a professional referral to the FBI because I know exactly how to package up a case to make a, a, the FBI care about it if it's significant, as opposed to just calling uh, calling the office uh, randomly. As a we are, we're going to be good friends. I I, I know uh, scenarios where you get a little frustrated with that, and this professional referrals I think could be a big deal. Right? In the perfect world, any citizen should be able to call the FBI and tell them what their complaint is, and then the FBI agent will be able to evaluate it. The problem is people are very bad communicators when it comes to what happened in a complex financial transaction. Sure. And so having someone like me who can talk to the client and understand exactly what occurred to them, and then talk to the FBI and translate that into the language that the agents can understand, it's a win-win. The FBI appreciates it, and the client appreciates me actually shepherding that referral through the door. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, those ones where they're investigating, like where someone got ripped off. Yeah. This is somewhere where they can hire you, package it up and help them tell the story. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times the board of directors just wants to understand what occurred. Sometimes I'm doing investigations in parallel with the FBI because the FBI has no obligation to share the fruits of their investigation with the board of directors and the victim. But the victim wants to know, right? There's a board of directors that say, hey, we know what we've been stolen from. The FBI is investigating. They're not telling us anything. Tom, can you conduct a parallel investigation and, and give a report to the board of directors letting us know exactly what occurred, how it occurred, and what internal controls can we put in place to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Did you like it when you were an FBI agent more than being independent like you are? Would Absolutely. You, you would you it's the liked, greatest job in the world. I loved it. You yeah. loved being the, an FBI. The cases were great. I didn't have to go out and like sell my ass to find a client. There the cases were just sitting there in a giant stack on my desk and I got to pick the one that had the most promise. So when you went to school What'd you have to, like, I guess, did you just study accounting? I majored in accounting. I majored in accounting. I went to Clemson University in South Carolina. You were a tiger. I was a tiger. There I had a full orange wardrobe tiger. There you go. And, uh, and so I went to Clemson and I got my four-year degree in accounting back when that was enough to get your CPA. I passed the CPA on the first try and got a job with a company called KPMG, a big accounting firm. Yep. Known well. Yeah. I, did, I worked in their audit practice for a couple of years. And then at that time, it was sort of the advent of their forensic and investigative services practice where basically they were doing what I'm doing now, working fraud investigations on behalf of clients. And so I did that for a little over a year until I turned the ripe old age of 25 and the FBI was ready for me. You have to be 25 to work for the FBI? No, there's no rule about that. But the FBI really, as a general rule, you're not going to be competitive unless you have at least three years of work experience. If you meet an FBI agent who came on at age 25, they're a CPA. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's just because it, again, we hire a lot of lawyers too. By the time you get out of law school, then you're 25, and then your three years is going to put you at age 28. The average starting age of an FBI special agent is 30. So I was really young when I went in. So if probably I became too an young. FBI agent, I'm 53. I can only work for four years. Right? Sadly, the maximum age for a new hire is an FBI special agent is 37. It's like a pilot. You know, no and the mandatory wants- retirement age is 57. And so they uh, they walk you out the door. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens is, so, you know, then you hit and you can retire once you hit 20 years and age 50. So uh, I stuck around till age 51 and then I retired. Wow. Wow. But I miss it. I loved it. It was a great job. I mean, it was really people our age, Todd, find themselves often looking back at their lives saying, does my life matter? You know, that kind of midlife crisis sure. thing. Nobody who is an FBI special agent needs to ask that question of themselves. Wow. How many FBI agents are there? 12,000. I saw uh, one of your TikToks where you talked about a case you followed that took some time. You, you've had some reflection on some of them about what happened to them, where they're at, et cetera. Um, when you left and retired, did you like leave in the middle of a cold case or? Like- I left in a bunch. I left a bunch of cases. That's the nice thing about the FBI is that we're all all the agents are fungible, right? And, and we're moving around a lot, and so getting reassigned cases and reassigning your cases to other agents when you get transferred or when you retire is just part of the deal. And mm-hmm. so, no one loves getting someone's leftover case, but I, I like to think that I left my cases in such a condition that the agents who inherited them can bring them across the finish line pretty easily. I felt that was my duty. Mm. You have any like major regrets about a case that maybe you didn't handle the way you prefer you handled it or yeah. the one that got away? I mean, I, I don't, I got to imagine in 26 years, yeah, I've been doing it for what I'm doing for 33 years and I have a billion, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't have a billion regrets, mm-hmm. but I would, if I had a chance to do things over, I know what I know today I would do differently. I, I can't think of something that I would regret because I just don't think it's the right like mentality. Right. But like knowing what happened in that 26 years, is there a few things that stand out? You go like, kind of wish I did that a little different. Uh, Yeah. There's one case that comes to mind. There was a case on a a couple, a husband and wife couple named John and Julianne Demetrian. They ran a mortgage remodification um, company where if you were were far, far behind in your mortgage facing foreclosure, they would swoop in, take your house off your hands, get your mortgage squared away, invest, invest the equity in your house in the investment scam. And tons of nice families in Hawaii ended up losing their houses as a result. They ended up pleading guilty to this crime. And in the federal system, you basically go home and uh, come back for sentencing. During that window of time before their sentencing, John and Julianne Dimitrian disappeared and they went on the lam and I was never able to catch them. I spent years and years and years tracking them around the world and I never caught them. And they're living comfortably somewhere laughing at me right now. And so that's the one that haunts me the most. You think they're really laughing? Because I would tell you that when you're on the, when you're on the run, I can't imagine that that unless you're a sociopath, I can't imagine that's a lifestyle someone would enjoy. It's so stupid about them that drives me a little bit crazy is it was a white collar crime. Like this was a nonviolent crime. They probably would have gotten three or four years. Now we're on like year 12 of them on the run looking over their shoulders. So I'm not sure they got a great deal out of this or made a great decision. Just as a matter of personal pride to me, the fact that they were smarter than me and I couldn't catch them still sticks in my craw. Is there, is there still someone looking for them? Or does oh, that yeah, no, they're, that they're, they're wanted. You go to the FBI's website. There's a wanted poster with them on it. Uh, there's an agent assigned to it. I, I think at some point after about 12 years, the agents kind of move on and you're just sort of hoping that they're going to get arrested for drunk driving and someone's going to roll their prints and find out, holy cow, this is John Dimitri and that fugitive wanted in Hawaii. 
And that's what happens, right? These guys get comfortable. They slip up. Maybe, uh, maybe they get a ticket or something. Someone pulls them over. Yeah. Well, it's not until you're fingerprinted, right? So let's assume that John and Julian Dimitrian have assumed new identities. You'd have to assume that right now in the world of the internet and databases. And so, and they may be back in the Philippines. Uh, they had family members back in the Philippines, but they, um, and so, yeah, it's, it would take something like that for them to be, but the fingerprints really more than anything else, a traffic ticket probably wouldn't do but it. They re- I, did they really outsmart you though? I mean, just let, let's, I want to, there's a cat and mouse game, Todd. I, know, I failed I wanna, to tag them. I know, but I want to, I want to, I want to, like unpack that for a second. Yeah. There's a world of like 164 different countries. Yes. They're not sentenced yet. Right. You don't know where they're going. Right. And then they go there. It's not like you were sitting out their house watching them. Are you are they leaving? <laughs> right. Oh, I see right. them. They're packing. They're running. They just disappeared. Right. But but once they're gone, it's my job to catch them and bring them to justice. And I did that throughout my career, catching fugitives. Like that's oh, a you thing. Did. That's okay, a thing we it. do. Oh, got it. You catch and, fugitives. Right. And so but like my, Tommy Lee. Well, yeah, he was a marshal, but same yeah, principle. Right. And so the the fact that I was unable to actually succeed in that just bothers me. It, I mean, I'm not saying I stood up at night like crying into my pillow about it, but mm-hmm. it's it it bugs me when I think about it. And, right. and I kind of shake my fist at the heavens and then move on with my life. I apologize for this question. Did you shoot anybody? No, I mean, no. I had my gun out several times, finger on the trigger, but thankfully they put they their hands, they, they put their hands up and did the right thing. Right. What kind of gun? Uh, we started out my, when I was young with a Sig Sauer nine millimeter. Sure. And then we went to a Glock 40 caliber. Oh, I got a 19. Glock and 19. then we went to a, a Glock nine millimeter. What was your favorite? Um, I like the Glock nine millimeter. It's what I carry now. Really? Mm-hmm. So uh, you're in the FBI. You're not Tom Hanks. He kind of got duped, right? The the guys in the room with him and Frank Abagnale in the movie uh, was uh, played by uh, uh, Leo runs out the window, like runs out the door, takes the machine with him, waving it. Does that kind of shit really happen? I mean, I, I never really got that close to most of my subjects. Most of my subjects knew darn well I was investigating them and they were just sort of sitting around waiting to be indicted oh, and, wow. or waiting for me to knock on their door. And, um, so that, I think there was a lot of poetic license in the Frank Abagnale story, but, uh, but, you know, he turned his life around and actually became a, an incredible, uh, advocate for, in the world of check and bank fraud and actually developed technologies and watermarks that were used are still being used today in the world of check fraud. Yeah. He definitely has contributed to society. Tur- yeah, There's he no great. question. Yeah, he was I mean, a kid when all that yeah, stuff Yeah, exactly. Happened. I mean, he, he turned his life around and, uh, you know, is, uh, and deserves to be famous. He's a great guy. Yeah. Um, but you you happen to know that guy? I met him. I mean, I, we were we both spoke at a bank fraud conference back to back. So I like to say I was his opening act. I introduced myself to him. He wouldn't know me if I was kicking him in the head. Oh. But uh, I met the guy. What's the like? What's the crime people can do right now that's like hot? Like, what do you think is like? bank fraud or something that's really like an up and coming crime identity theft right now there's just so much money to be made in identity theft and uh, the banks are so aggressive and it's so easy to get a credit card you know they're practically sending you credit cards and uh, that applying stealing someone's mail and applying for a credit card in someone else's name happens all the time and it's, it's just it's such a pain in the neck for everybody i just don't get how that happens like how does a bank just oh just they just use a different address yeah i mean i don't the my name and social security number and your name and social security number exists somewhere on the dark web ready to be downloaded. And then someone can apply for, you know, get a corporate account with Verizon, apply for 20 iPhones for our corporate account in our names. And then it sits on our credit history. The uh, phones are being delivered to some, you know, mail drop and then the phones are gone. It's it's petty crime, but it's a pain in the neck. My wife, but it's interesting. My wife got a 
call a call from American Express and said, "We've halted your card. Five iPads have been ordered delivered right. to this hotel," and they caught it. Yeah, that we didn't even know about it. And then we had found out how it happened was my wife took a call from Verizon and they said we need some password from you, and she gave it to him. Every I'm five. Like, <sighs> Every five years, the FBI reinvestigated me to re-up my top secret security clearance. Uh -huh. And one of the things they do is a credit check. And in my last credit check before I retired, I found that a, I theoretically owed Verizon a ton of money, looked into it and found that someone using my name and social security number ordered just a boatload of phones. And it took me forever to unwind it. It was a pain in the neck. And I was in a position of authority at the time. So I can't imagine what a citizen what does who does I do come to you and say, hey, Tom, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Yeah. They say, hey, you deadbeat. What are you stealing from Verizon for? And I said, it wasn't me. And they said, well, I actually had to go to my local police department and file a police report knowing they would never do it to help kind of unwind the situation. But they like give you the benefit out. I mean, the FBI up. wasn't on me, but yeah. at some point I need my credit, uh, my credit score, which I wasn't paying attention to because right. I wasn't applying for a mortgage had, de had degraded because of that. When you're an FBI agent for 26 years, can you do anything wrong? I mean, you guys are you guys. Can you drink beer? Uh, I'm not a drinker myself, but you can drink beer. What you can't do is drink and drive. Can't drink and drive. Right. They frown on that. And you can't smoke pot because that's federally legal. Right? They also frown on that. They probably frown on drugs too. Yeah. I would say it's probably. Unless it's prescription only. Yeah. And you can, in, in the, one of the questions that's being asked when they reinvestigate us is, is this person who abuses prescription drugs. Right. And you said there's 14,000 of you? 12,000. Between 12 and 13,000 at any given moment. Yeah. Right. Is that a lot? I think it's been pretty steady. The when I came on in 1995, I think there was about 12,000 FBI agents, and I don't think that number has increased. Obviously, it turns over. Let's let's go back to how someone can hire you. Um, I I wanna I wanna help the audience. So how do they get a hold of Tom Simon? Best thing you could do to get a hold of me would go to my website, SimonInvestigations.com, and and from there you have all the contact information you would need to get a hold of me. SimonInvestigations.com. That's correct. And they and they would say, hey, you know, send you a message. Hey, I want to talk to you. you send call me an them. email. You call me. I'm I'm multi-platform. And I'm, you're I'm on TikTok. Easy. You're on Instagram. I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Simon Investigations on both the both of those. And so, if anyone wants to follow me to watch my little one minute videos every day, I'd sure appreciate it. Do you ever do any investigations now where you're like seeing if the husband's cheating? Yeah, that was. I mean, that was my bread and butter for a long time. And uh, as a private investigator, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm getting started. No one knew me, right? And so you you pick up those leads all the time. I don't like those cases, but um, and I always need. I spend a lot of time controlling my clients' expectations about my ability to find out if they're cheating because people hire me all the time to do a surveillance. I hate surveillances, so I overcharge for it and let them know I'm overcharging and that they could get this elsewhere for cheaper, but they still want to hire me for it. And so I'll be sitting in my you know car watching the, a door that doesn't open or a car that doesn't drive for eight hours. And and uh, But I always tell the client, we need to think really hard about what are we going to accomplish here? Do you, is there a time that you believe that he's out there cheating? Or are we just going to pick a random eight-hour window of time to see, um, to like audit this guy? And so I do everything I can to dissuade my clients from hiring me to do that because one i hate doing it and two it's just unsatisfying to the client because very rarely are people cheating out in the public eye where i could actually see them 
but you could see them like going to a room and a person joining in right? the perfect situation. I also have databases that will do some of that for me with using automated license plate readers. So I can run your license plate through my automated license plate reader and see where police cars or stationary cameras have picked up your license plate, uploaded that into the cloud and allow me to download it. And I charge for that. And if you're parked outside the Motel 6 at this particular time where your, your wife thought you were working late, it's much cheaper than paying me to sit in my Lexus peeing, in, peeing in a Gatorade bottle for eight hours waiting for someone to not cheat. So so you can you can upload where a car has been? Again, if it was captured on an automated license plate reader, right? Your, a cop car drives through the Target parking lot. There are cameras associated with that cop car that are taking the picture of every license plate that it drives by in that parking lot and then uploading the time, date, place that that car is. And that information then gets sold to people like me to do data mining for clients. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not saying I think this is a good idea, but I'm saying it's a product that I offer my clients. Yikes. Yeah, I don't want to talk about cheating cases anymore. Knowing where my license plate's been. <laughs> Luckily for me, I've only been to one strip club in Vegas in the last year and a half since I moved here. And my wife was with me, so so is a bunch of people I know. You married well. I did marry well. Yeah, I I uh, I'm one of those guys who like tells her everything so that no one has anything on me. So I have tons of stories of where my friends like mention some stupid shit in front of my wife and they, and my wife, Oh yeah. You told me about that. Yeah, that, I do. How uh, many years you've been married to her? Uh, 19, I believe. Right. Or is it, I'm in my 19th. I'm in my 19th or 20th. Yeah. Year. I'm in I 20. I got 25 under my belt. Yeah. So, so like, it, we have four kids and uh, I just figured it's easier just to, uh, and I have to remember, I, I don't, if, the reason I don't lie is because I don't have to remember it. Bingo. So it's just easier. And unfortunately, uh, some people don't like the fact that I've like, you know, one of the other things I do too, that's a little different is like, if someone said something to me about someone that works with me, I'll just call them into a room and said, this person said this about you. Is this true? And that drives people crazy. But uh, it's just because I, I, I like transparency. It's yeah. a really, it's a weird, I, by public persona, I don't know, hopefully we'll get to where I'm really a transparent guy. I actually run a show uh, that's a live show where we talk about stuff all the time, but I don't know that it matters. Maybe it shouldn't be that transparent, but um, did your neighbors know you were an FBI agent? Yeah, I never really kept it secret. I, uh, I, some agents are really, really guarded about what they do for a living, but I think most of those are the guys who are working in the national security sphere. My, my world was in criminal cases, so if I was doing my job right, my cases would be in open court that anyone could go to and sit in the gallery and watch me testify. And so I have felt that I got a lot more out of being a public face of the FBI and getting out there and, and letting people know what I do for a living. And, and that way, friends and neighbors could always come to me if they had information to provide or or needed help or wanted to refer a case to me. So I was never cagey about what I did for a living. I was also the press spokesperson for the FBI in uh, for parts of my career. So when they needed some FBI agent on the courthouse steps, ranting and raving like a lunatic, it was usually me. See, I told you. He says, no, I'm not Hollywood. Yeah, he was the he was the press agent. Okay. It, it was always a collateral duty, yeah, though. Uh -huh. it, was, it was never, it was never, I was always a full, I would never ever walk away from investigations, but if they needed someone to talk to the media, I was always happy to do it because I'm so proud of what we did. And I feel that we, the FBI is often maligned in the media and I wanted to be an advocate for what we were doing because I really am a true believer. I wasn't, I was always, I was going somewhere different about being maligned. I was actually thinking that I always know that people say, hey, my neck nor neighbor's an FBI agent. Or I know an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. My friend's an FBI agent. That's like some like secret club. There's only 12,000 of you. So, you know, I know now I know a guy 
who was an FBI agent and who's friendly with the FBI, right? I mean, that's kind of like a cool thing. It's a cool thing until you get to know me and realize how how utterly disappointing I am in real life. <laughs> you know, it's just, Ouch. It's, I'm just a normal guy. It's like, you know. I know, but, but you it, do know people at the FBI. Well, yeah, of course. Right. Of course. That's, but so that's do you. not normal. If you, you call the FBI tomorrow, Todd, someone will take your call. I understand, I but they're going to take yeah. your call better. If you called up and said, hey, Tom, I got a guy who's a client. I'm going to tell you a story and you're going to keep it precise for them. You're going to get further along. I've learned this. By the way, those of you who are watching understand Risk On, you understand the book, Relationships Matter. You got to have a relationship with Tom if you're going to run a business and you want to have access. Otherwise, I'm sorry, Tom. I know the FBI. They're very nice people, I'm sure, but they don't have time for every call and can give it all that duty. But when you present it to them, I bet you anything, they go, okay. Why is Tom spending his time here? I hope I can be a good advocate for my clients, but sure. I, it's a, but I also don't want to make it seem like there's some. Yeah, you need a gatekeeper. Any citizen of the United States who has information to provide or has been victimized with a crime can contact the FBI or even walk into the FBI office, sit down with an agent, and explain what your problem is. So mm. I am not pretending at all that I have some special key to the kingdom that any other citizen doesn't have. The N in Risk On uh, stands for Never Give Up. Is there a scenario? Uh, where you're not giving up on looking for those people a little bit? Uh, I mean, trust me, if I saw them on the subway, I would like ankle tackle them and hold them till the police came. Oh, but, really? <laughs> but but I, uh, I've moved on emotionally. It just bothers me when I think about it right. and think about that they're still out there and I failed to catch them. Was there one like bank crime or someone where they got away with a ton of money and you never were able to catch them or know who how they did it? Was there like some big like big dollar crime something big yeah the unsolved child murders that i worked where yeah. a child disappears and uh, wow. and we know gosh darn well who did it but we couldn't find the bodies of the children and it's difficult to prosecute someone for a murder without a dead body and so those cases continue to haunt me mm. we can't end on that note sorry pal Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah but no i mean as far as financial crime cases they all pretty Ouch. much cleared or didn't clear yeah most of the people doing corporate embezzling, they get caught, don't they? Hard to say because I don't find out about the ones who get away with it, right? Uh, right. By definition, the, I only get to find out about the ones. What I'm surprised about are the embezzlement schemes that just go on for years where someone has been embezzling from this company for like 10 years time before they actually get caught. That's just baffling to me that that could occur, but it happened a lot. What's your, what's your favorite takedown? Like, you know, are you on like a, a deal where you're going to go arrest someone? Like there's like a bunch of you going? Do you have like a favorite takedown? Like an arrest? Like a the favorite arrest where you guys arrested him. Yeah, yeah, let me think. Let me think. Like um Bogoyevich or something. I wasn't on that arrest because I was doing interviews of people mm. who were captured uh, on the wire for that case. But let me think of, think about an interesting arrest story. The FBI tends to do our arrests very early in the morning and uh, because the it's just an officer safety issue. We want to catch people when they're groggy and like in bed. So we'll go out and do our, our arrests at like five in the morning, four in the morning, but we generally try to study their lifestyle and find out when, you know, what time they usually start their day and then back that up about an hour. So I've done a ton of arrests uh, where we uh, knock on the door, you know, FBI, and we have to breach and go in where the subject is just absolutely stark naked. And so, um, and so we, uh, we, we let them get dressed. We let them get dressed, and we also let them go to the bathroom because I know when I wake up, that's what I need to do as well. Me too. But, it, yeah. but it's, uh, but it's, it's always an awkward situation for everyone involved. But then you got to search the bathroom first to make sure there's not like a handgun in the bathroom because you or don't want weapon. them, yeah, yeah, you don't want them killing themselves or someone else. And so you're trying to balance the humanity of of how you're going to treat this person, uh, or and versus the officer safety issue and your need to bring them in. When you arrest them, what's the average person do like when they're in your custody? They blab. 
Oh, uh, you mean during the interrogation? No, like, no, you arrest him, you put him in the car. Are they blabbing? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I always stop them from talking because there's not a whole lot that I'm going to be able to accomplish in the car. So I always begin the conversation by saying, I want to talk to you about what happened. And, but I want to do that when we get back to my office. So it's important that you understand, my friend, that you have the right to remain silent. That anything you say can be used against you. And I, I would go through the Miranda warning very conversationally and say, so let's sit here in the car because the traffic's hitting now. It's going to be a 45-minute drive till we get to the FBI office. When we get there, I'm going to give you some breakfast. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a nice conversation. We're going to walk through your rights again. But let's not talk about your case and what brings you brings us to your house this morning while we're on this car ride. And I do that tactically because mm -hmm. I don't want them to confess to me while I'm driving in the car. You want to defuse well, them too. You want I, to want to, I want to lower the situation. I want to be the nicest. I want to, I want to be the nicest guy in the world. I'm going to give right? you some breakfast. Right. I want to build maybe a little eggs Benedict. I get 45 minutes in that car with them to build rapport and have them understand that I understand that this is the worst day in their lives and I'm this compassionate guy. And then they confess to me, gosh darn near every time, Todd. Really? Yeah. All right. My, my, my clearance rate for confessions was astronomical. My first high. wife worked for the DA for a while. And she used to tell me that the police officers would take the long way to the station when they arrested someone because the people would be in the back of the car telling them everything you could ever think of, blabbing their ass off all the time. She used to say to me, ever get arrested, just shut your mouth. Just say nothing. And people won't do that. They want to, they want to sell their way out of what, if you got an FBI agent showing up at your house and arresting you, that isn't something that just happened like you guys didn't decide the day before, right? Right. It's not a lot. I mean, how, what's the lead up time before you make an arrest generally? On a white collar crime case, I always said it takes me about a year, maybe a little less to investigate and then uh, and before ready to bring charges. And you can't just say to those people, hey, uh, talk to their attorney and say, can he turn himself in? You can, but why would I treat them any better or differently than I would a bank robber or mm -hmm. a gangbanger, right? right? Just right. because there's some white rich guy, they don't get to have deference. Hey, how do you know it has to be a white guy? Well, you know, my, 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 my point black though. Black guys that are rich. Plenty of Asians that are rich. Fair enough. But my point is that treating, that, are rich. that treating white power criminals it's as good. if they're royalty is a, is a terrible mistake. And we and we need to treat them like, uh, you know, the same way you would treat any subject of an investigation. I will say, though, I very rarely... Um, did uh, I, I always try to do my interrogations uh, long before it was time to charge them? I, if you're arresting them and then interrogating them, uh, it's an unusual situation. On a white collar crime case, I'm interrogating them pretty early in the case. Do they have a lawyer present? Heck no. You're interrogating the person you're going after without a lawyer present? Without question. Because they waive their rights? They don't need to, I don't need to read them the rights if they're sitting in their office and I show up and say, hi, I'm with the FBI. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a situation. Is it okay if I come in? And then you sit down and we talk. I only need to read you your rights if you are in custody and if you've been charged with a crime. But they could also say, I'm not going to talk to you. They absolutely can, but right. I'm a really charming guy, Todd. People like talking this to me. This guy scared me. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I swear <laughs> to God. Read the prospectus. <laughs> wow. So Christy, uh, you helped me get Tom out here. He probably thought I was a lunatic when I sent him, <laughs> hey, can you come out to Vegas and be on my show? No, no. I want to get your reaction. Did you actually think I was serious or what did you think? I didn't know what to think. I, I mean, I didn't. You had followed me back. Right. Well, I didn't know you. And so I, my kid plays um, water polo for Florida State. So I'm at, a, I'm at a Florida State water polo game watching my kid play. And I get a message from you on TikTok saying, hey, I want to fly you out to Vegas and put you on my podcast. 
I was like, I don't know this guy. This is a really weird approach. I'm going to end up in some sex dungeon with a leather ball in my mouth. Ouch. And so I, uh, and so, and then you're like, I'll have my assistant contact you. And I talked to you, Christy, and you were super nice and professional. But I said, listen, this whole thing's a little weird. I, give me an hour to do some due diligence on this Todd Alt guy. What find out who the, he is. What's your due diligence like? I like just hit your LinkedIn. That was, oh, that was yeah. enough to give me a sense of comfort that you're not some lunatic. I'm not uh, lunatic. Yeah, no, no. Was, you're totally cool. And I've since watched a billion episodes of your show and I love your show. Cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. Right. Appreciate it. And so the fact that I get to meet you in person is a real honor. Oh, wow. An honor. So Christy, uh, I know that you were excited about this FBI gin and all and probably wanted him to invest some sort of alligator stealing that happened in Louisiana <laughs> when you were a kid. Uh, or maybe, uh, you know, down in Louisiana, the uh, mosquito is the state fly. So you want to investigate some sort of mosquito bite that took place. But what's your question for uh, Tom Simon. I don't think that was as funny as I thought it was going to be. I think state but bird still, is funnier. State bird, yeah. state bird, right? Yeah. Yes, state, absolutely. It's the state bird. State fly. Mosquito, yeah. State fly. I don't, sorry. <laughs> state bird. I'm not your comedy yeah, writer, but exactly. I'm happy to help. And yeah. I, did, that, I didn't deliver that very well. But I know that you and I are both excited to have him on the show. So uh, ask away. Yeah. So I just wanted to uh, ask you, uh, Tom, that uh, whenever you're um, having you have kids, right? You have yeah, a family. Sure. So do you have daughters? I have a daughter and a son. My daughter is 20. My son is 18. And so when your daughter, for example, uh, you know, has uh, someone who's interested in dating her, um, does the FBI agent come out in you and then you do a thorough, uh, you know, background search on the guy? I, I do not use any, I've never used any government resources to screen my daughter's dates. That would be uh, illegal and, uh, and it would also be wrong. As a private investigator, I have a little more latitude. The boy she's dating right now is a really nice kid and probably doesn't need a proctology exam from me. So, uh, so it hasn't really been an issue. And, and, and I think if you do the legwork on the front end with kids, they're going to make good choices. And so I'm real proud of both of my kids that they're the type of kids who are going to make good choices and, and don't need me to be conducting surveillances and trash covers on their dates. And has there ever been someone Chrissy, that's that that's a you've... good question, by the way. I just want to say. Thank you. That's a good question. I have another I one. About that. Like, it's like, uh, hey, uh, the guy who has the shotgun at the house, you're dating my daughter, she'll be home by 11 o'clock kind of thing. Yeah. I got to tell you, I think everyone's full of shit. That the second I know the FBI is involved, I don't care if he worked there, he used to work there. Even I was like, I don't, I don't do anything wrong, but do I want to invite him out of here and be on my podcast? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I'd be nervous if I were like the son. Yeah, no, the, I, think that, that, I would say that's true. The, the boys may be totally nervous meeting me, but I like to think I'm kind of disarming. And, and oh, I like you're think very disarming. So my dad, are... can you imagine, Christy, my dad's an FBI agent. And when you show up, <laughs> just be nice. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Because when I say that my dad's, um, you know, a redneck from the swamp and uh, three people I'd go out. I'd be more scared of that, back. Christy. Yeah, that's kind of like FBI. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, cleaning, so, the, cleaning the gun at the table when they come to pick her up. Oh, for that's the, like, yeah. yeah, that's pretty standard in my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, um, I wanted to ask you, um, has there ever been a case where you are someone in your personal life or someone, uh, you know, at the PTA church or, or whatever, where, oh, they're so nice and friendly and, and, uh, oh, she's, she's uh, a perfect, she's, she goes to church. She, she, uh, cooks, uh, you know, brownies for the community. Turns out she's the little, the little lady who's poisoning people and cashing their social security checks. Yeah. Tell me about something like Ouch. that. Well, I think that's a great question. Because I, I watched Dateline. 
Yeah, no, completely. I would say nearly <laughs> all of the expert. people I investigated in the world of financial crime are incredibly kind and charming people. You have to be to be able to separate people from their money by lying to them, right? They're not selling an investment. They're selling themselves and they're selling the trust you're going to put in them that they would never do anything wrong. I had a case against a woman named Suzette Angwai. She was a Pop Warner football mom. and oh, she oh, 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 I know this case. She was, she was a Pop Warner football mom and she was offering investments in what she said was home flipping. She had a company called Money Sense. It was really corny. The S in sense was a dollar sign. And she took in $800,000 from other Pop Warner football parents to, um, who invested money with her. And she literally just spent it all on herself. She did not invest a penny of that money, but they trusted her because she was a kind and lovely member of the community who would make the you know Rice Krispie treats before the football games. And so the people put, I invested- put her in jail though. Oh yeah, without question. Yeah. And uh, in fact, she, her, her whole thing was um, she pleaded guilty pretty easily. She lawyered up, so I never got a chance to interrogate her. But then she, um, her attorney said that she was too weak and frail to actually go to her own sentencing. Mm -hmm. And so I was very frustrated with the prosecutor. I'm like, how can we get her to come to the sentencing? Because the judges in Hawaii are very compassionate. And um, and he's like, and he's like, well, if this was my case, Tom, I might follow her around to show that she is not weak and frail. So I put a surveillance team on her, and she was living this like very robust lifestyle. when uh, when she thought no one was looking, and we all we had to do was present that to her defense attorney and say, this is not going to play well with the judge. Maybe you want to get her in the door. And so she came wow. in for her sentencing and she got her time. How long did she serve? I, I'm trying to remember. It was four or five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my, my bad guys usually serve between two and five years. I mean, that's really the white collar crime sentence. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I have another question. Yeah, lay it on me. So um, when they get out of prison, do they come looking for you? And oh, try God. To no, that's a good question. I get that all the time because yeah. uh, I'm out there. I think the important thing is that I never treat people, the subjects of my investigation, with any disrespect whatsoever. And so they know what they did. Most of them, a vast majority of them, plead guilty to what they did. And I always treat them with an immense amount of respect and kindness. One, because it's not my job to punish them. It's my job to find out what happen. And two, because it just, that's just who I am. And you're going to get more information from them when they cooperate. So I don't think anybody that I investigated feels that they were treated unfairly by me and I would never lie or abuse them. And so I think most of them just want to move on with their lives. The idea of going and like killing me after the fact, I don't know what that's going to accomplish for them. Um, more time. Yeah, more jail time. I mean, and, uh, and it, when I was an agent, the idea of them killing me, the case would just get reassigned to someone smarter and better looking. So, Ouch. I mean, it's it's just, uh, it, it, it does nothing for them because agents are fungible, right? The cases get reassigned all the time. So there's really no upside to killing me before or after. And if you treat people right and you don't abuse them or lie about them, you're not really even giving them an incentive. Most of them just want to move on with their lives. There's a ton of people around FTX they kind of thought something was weird. I actually did. I actually said, I don't understand where he's getting all the money. Yeah. He, he raised $1.8 to run the company, where he was getting all the money to do all the things he was doing, especially when I heard that he might put as much as $3 billion into Twitter. Uh, it doesn't, didn't make any sense. Right. Um, I just wanted your, I realize there's no possibility that you're up to speed on this case because it's it's breaking as we talk about. Yeah, it. I mean, by the time this airs, everything we say about it is probably going to be obsolete. Right, but I just wondered, like, is this sort of like a typical you knew kind of could happen thing? Do you see a lot of these scenarios? Because I was like, sometimes I want to go back a little bit to give you an example. When I was in the two thousand six seven time frame, I did not own a home, and everyone I know was buying two and three rental houses. Yeah, 
I'm like, I can't get a loan. And I was making north of a hundred some thousand dollars a year. I'm like, I, I made more money than that. I'm like, I don't understand how you're getting all these homes. And I kind of knew it was happening in plain sight. What's your take on what happened with FTX to the knowledge you have so far? Well, I think so much of it just looks bad for uh, for Sam, his name? The, yeah, yeah, Sam Bankman Free. Yeah, for Sam. I mean, like the idea that you flee the country once the investigation begins. Allegedly. I think he's still in, I, I think he's still he? there. In the okay, bottom, again, yeah. yeah I, I, I know that was a report, but I think they said his plane went to Argentina, but I don't think he left. Right. Even uh, trying to, from my perspective, understanding why you would incorporate in the Bahamas to begin with. Do you have an understanding why you would do that? Is there, Ta a, business, is there a business reason? Uh, the laws, taxation laws, and the ability to trade offshore, the U.S. Uh, is more regulated than the offshore trading that they were doing. Right. So that's to me, in my mind, that's kind of a red flag right away. Like, what is it, what do you have to hide that you're going to this offshore country of the Bahamas to do your business in that you're so scared that American regulators and or law enforcement are going to be able to scrutinize your books that that it's really important that you go offshore to do this business? The tax thing I get. Right. So mm -hmm. that makes that's a that, that's a sound business decision. Sure. I've done investigations coupled with the government of the Bahamas, and I don't have any sense of comfort that they have the the resources and kind of financial crime firepower to do an investigation of this magnitude. Well, so they have specific laws that basically protect them. I mean, they, they, I mean, bad or good, right. 90 miles off the coast or whatever they are, they basically have laws that, uh, shield creditors and shield, they shield people. I mean, yeah. I mean, clear as day. the police I worked with in the Bahamas were good people who love their country and wanted to do the right thing, but I wouldn't entrust them within a, a case of this level of financial sophistication. And so it's just bad, man. I feel sorry for the uh, for everybody who lost money in this situation. But as a crypto skeptic, I take a look at it and say, you know, you F around and find out, you know? Yeah, but to go back, I guess we're going to go back to crypto again. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of fraud on dot-com stuff. And that was, I mean, I think we're any, when it, whenever there's new financial innovation, mm -hmm. yeah. it breeds con artists, it breeds people to do. I mean, I just don't understand why people, even the people that hate me, I, like, why did you invest without reading the prospectus first? I'm a public company. Like, I file quarterly reports and, and very enhanced disclosure statements, and they write things to me later. I'm like, yeah, but did you read it? I mean, right. I guess I want to send a message to people like if you wanted to help people avoid things, how do you, what's like the, everyone's that everything's down to a sign, sound bite. What's the sign, a sound bite, sorry, the sound bite that we tell people do this before you do that. I watched your episode with that young lady, Natalie, who's so smart when it yeah, comes to crypto smart, stuff. Right. And she, she did such a great service by recommending that if you're going to hold Bitcoin, hold it yourself in your own Bitcoin wallet. Don't entrust it to some third party to be your caretaker of that stuff because you don't know what that guy is going to do with your money. Again, I'm not a crypto fan. She and I will disagree on the on the, the utility of Bitcoin as you and I disagree. Sure. But she's gosh darn right when it says that you do not want to leave this stuff in the hands of some third party in the Bahamas to entrust your assets too when you can perfectly well hold a bitcoin wallet with your own assets mm. so what's next for you your agency's growing you're now retired from the fbi your kids are older what's your plans right now with your agency i hope to just continue working cases until i'm too old to do so i really love doing investigations and i like doing financial investigations so my hope is to continue bringing clients on board and being able to answer the questions that they need answered in their lives you talked about uh that you do business in dubai and other countries 
And really, it's Simon Worldwide Investigations, right? It is. Yeah, it's probably a more lofty name than the actual firm of just me needs. But I do have worldwide clients, yes. And you have access to people worldwide. I mean, I got to assume that you have, since you have people you know around the world and you know the FBI, you, you could probably mobilize people if you had something big, right? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, uh, the FBI doesn't do my bidding now that I'm a former agent and a private investigator. No, I mean, they, they're not at my disposal to go run down leads for me. That'd be lovely if they were. That'd be a great professional courtesy, but I would never ask that and it would be uh, illegal for them to do that. My only contact with the FBI are my, only, my friends that I met over the past 26 years and people who are happy to take my referrals if I'm going to deliver them a new case with, on a silver platter. They'd right. be crazy not to take my call for that. Right, because you get to... You get to you get, the shorten the work span a little bit. There. Yeah, if I, it, I loved it when a private investigator or forensic accountant or even an attorney would give me a case that they have done and say, here's my investigation. And then all I had to do is kind of recreate their work. They've left the breadcrumbs for me. That was a pleasure. That case went right on the front burner. Where do you put your where do you put your money? I, my, I'm a very conservative investor. I, I, I S&P 500 uh, tracking stocks. You should know that I told my wife the following when if I die, Take our money, average into the S&P over 24 months and leave it there. Take out 4% a year. You'll be fine. Absolutely. absolutely. That's my recommendation. And so that's okay. what I've done that for 26 years and wow. it's, it's served me well. I, I have a proposal for you. Lay it on me. I would like to do a quarterly call with you that's live where people can ask questions. I'm happy to. What I, do you say? What do you say? What do you say, Christy? Everyone, Tom Simon, thank you so much for being here. I could go on for ask a lot more questions. Wait a second. I didn't get your question, did I? Nope. We do have a question oh, from the peanut gallery. we have a question from the audience. Skyla? If somebody wanted to be an FBI agent, how would they prepare themselves to do that? Okay, the first thing you want to do is make sure you don't major in criminal justice, right? It's the biggest okay. scam in the world. And the, you were, you, the fact that universities are out there selling criminal justice degrees by telling young people that they will qualify for the FBI, those people should be in prison on the, at the universities. If you want to be an FBI special agent, you should major in STEM, right? What science, technology, engineering, or math, and, uh, or accounting, or law or learn a foreign language. And then after you get one of those degrees, work for three years in that field and then apply to become an FBI special agent. Stay away from crimes, criminals, and drugs, and you will be a perfect candidate. All right. And Skyla, even yeah. though I know you smoke marijuana from time to time, which is legal in Nevada, if you just don't do it for a year, you can get hired. They yeah, just tap the brakes a little bit. <laughs> and you're right. 22, so you could get hired in a few years as yeah. an FBI agent. Yeah, I mean, the, again, just the average... tap those brakes. The average starting age of an agent is 30. So most people, it's a second career, and the vast majority of FBI agents take a pay cut to take the job. Guys, can get a hold of Tom um, on Twitter. No, excuse me. Is he on Twitter, too? I'm everywhere, man. He's everywhere. We're going to make sure the links are below... Tom Simon, founder of Simon Worldwide Investigations. What's the URL again? SimonInvestigations.com. That's not very complicated. Um, you guys check out uh, what we have coming up. Don't forget, uh, this June, we're going to have another RiskOn conference. Appreciate everyone be here. He was kind enough to fly all the way from Florida to be here. But he's worldwide. And if you get a, need to get a hold of him, I, I will tell you, if you take any lessons from what mistakes I've made, Spend a couple hundred bucks. What is it? Four, 300, 400 bucks, 500 bucks to do a background check on someone, especially if they're in a position of important power where they're going to be like managing your money, where they're going to be like handling AP or just accounting. It's, it's, it's worth the money. I got to tell you. And what's best about it that I found is that when you get the information and you ask them, if they just tell you, you can see their honesty. It's embarrassing for some people. They made a mistake. But the ones that are the most trustworthy tell you they made a mistake. They say, oh, I did this when I was a kid, or I hired someone. I had a friend of mine.
good friend of mine who was actually uh uh he actually dealt drugs when he was 20 years old got arrested and put in jail and turned his life around became a broker and he had to disclose that his whole life that he spent time in jail but he told me right up front what happened to him right right up front and i had a long probably 30 year relationship with him still do um and he was able to become do really well on wall street because it wasn't a financial crime. He did something stupid like, I think, sold yeah. cocaine or something like that. I think the irony was is his dad was like a DEA agent in Colombia. I said to him, you actually got in trouble for drugs, uh, selling drugs, and your dad was a DEA agent? He goes, yeah, I was a little bit rebellious. Like, that kind of made sense, right? But my point here is is that you got to just ask the right questions. Uh, Tom, would you? Yeah, I'd say that's right. And again, it, the idea is that none of us are perfect, right? None of us walk through this world without leaving tracks. But the people, when you're doing risk mitigation, just need to understand what those facts are so they can make an informed decision. So how hard is it to become an FBI agent? Like if you said to someone, the likelihood of you getting hired is how difficult it passes that. I would say it's competitive, not hard, mm -hmm. right? So there's just a lot of applicants for a finite amount of spaces. And so, and then we're subject to Congress and how much money they're giving us to hire new agents. Damn, I forgot to ask you that. Were you like, did you have to go through the Jody, Jody Foster training yeah. at, the, at the FBI Academy? Sure. All, all FBI agents go through the program, the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. It's a bit of a mix between law school and boot camp. They're teaching uh, constitutional law, investigative techniques, how to fight, how to shoot. And then, uh, uh, you graduate and you get a gun and a badge and you're out there on the streets investigating cases. How long was the cases. boot camp thing? Uh, when I went through, it was 16 weeks. Now it's 20 weeks. Damn. That's longer than the Marine Corps. You're staying in the dorms. It's like college again. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Were you married then? Um, I was dating the woman who I'm now married to. And you said, I'm going to have to go for 16 weeks to FBI training? Moreover, uh, you don't know where you're going, right? And so you go away to Quantico, and on week four, they tell you what city you'll be assigned to. And so it, it might have been, so it was, goodbye, girlfriend, I'll see you in 16 weeks, and I'll let you know on week four where I'm going to be living. And then you can make that business decision about whether you want to follow me to Lubbock, Texas, or Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, so... <laughs> I guess it worked out. She followed me. But it's kind of sexy, right? If I was a if I was a female as I was dating a guy and I was like, he's gonna become an FBI agent. That's kind of cool. My wife's fond of reminding me all the time that she loved me when I was a boring accountant. And so uh, she wasn't chasing the badge. Wow. wow. Are you impressed? Oh, yeah. I'm impressed. Is it your favorite? Of all time? Better than Scaramucci? That's a different. That's a that's different. A different type. Oh, okay, he's yeah. really good. He's a, he's believe it or not, people like when you when you listen to Anthony Scaramucci, you spend time with him, you realize what a good guy he is. That guy got such a raw deal. I know. For he his, is his really brief government service. Anthony yeah. Scaramucci. I got to be honest with you. He is. If I don't care what political side you're on, he's a smart guy. If you tell me you don't like him, that means you don't know him. Yeah. Because when you get to know that guy. Anthony Scaramucci is the most straightforward. He's like a real stand-up guy. Real stand-up guy. Yeah. And I'm sorry. If you don't like him from right or left, you're wrong, absolutely wrong. As far as I'm concerned, I consider him a friend. I agree. I mean, I don't know the guy, but I have a lot of respect well, for him. And he was thrust. He, was, know him. I'm he was he was thrust into a real bad situation in the administration. I'm going to try to get him to the RISCON conference in, in this June. I like having him around. Everybody, Tom Simon. Uh, we'll put up everything. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. You know, I'm going to explain to you. There's a reason for it. So, so I did get that right. I did get that yeah, right. You got it right.